Well, good morning, family. As you get situated, you can get your Bibles out and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As we're making our way through this amazing letter from the Apostle Paul that God has given us, the second letter to the church at Corinth, we have so many amazing moments ahead for us in 2 Corinthians. I can barely contain myself and even the moment that's before us today is uh, such a gift and such a blessing that in so many ways I just find myself sometimes wishing that there were more Sundays in a week than one. So if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, you can just take that pew Bible and open to page 1327. And welcome to all of you that are joining us online. We love you. We pray that you... Uh, we'll be in gospel community as soon as that is possible for you. And we thank God for the technology that allows us to uh, share what God has uh, given for us today with you, no matter where you may be. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now remember last week where we left off, the Apostle Paul was addressing this turmoil that he had uh, gotten involved in because um, he told the church at Corinth that he wanted to come visit and that his plan was to stop by on his way to Macedonia and then on the way back to stop by again, even hopefully to be able to spend the winter with them. But God had different plans for him, and so as the Holy Spirit began to direct him in other ways, things changed, and the Apostle Paul Uh, wasn't able to make that visit. And so the false teachers began to use this against Paul and say, Paul's not trustworthy. Paul uh, is not somebody that you can count on. He said he was going to come, but he didn't come. And, you know, we talked last week about how uh, we as God's children, uh, our yes should always be yes and our no should always be no, but we're, we're also under authority. And as the Holy Spirit moves, guides, and directs, uh, we have to be conscious of those things. And Paul told them that the reason why he didn't come and visit was because he didn't want to have a severe visit. He He wanted to visit, have a visit that would edify their relationship, not hurt it. And so God had simply shown him that they weren't ready for him to visit yet. And so what Paul does is... He doesn't, he doesn't bash them. He doesn't get defensive with them. But he builds their confidence. He builds their assurance. He reminds them of what they already know, what he's already told them. And I want us to focus in beginning in verse 18 where the Bible says, but God is faithful. So he reminds them, God is faithful. Our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. 
and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What a blessing that word is. See, what the Apostle Paul does here is he says, because of the work of Christ, because God has established us, he has, he has put us on a firm foundation, he's anointed us, he's sealed us. So what he has done is, is permanent according to his power and authority. He's filled our hearts with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee so that we would not be dismayed or bewildered when life got difficult, but we would remember the things that God has done to prove to us that he is faithful and that he is true. He's saying we're absolutely, positively secure in Christ. So here's what I want you to know this morning. I want you to know that you're not the only one that all of us who are in Christ need to be reminded that we're secure in Christ. I want you to know that, that we all live in the same fallen world and we all struggle with trials and, and temptations and difficulties. And, and you cannot live in this world without going through seasons of discouragement or disappointment. I mean, we... We not only live in a fallen world, but, but we, we exist in a world filled with people who are not followers of God and who don't have the Spirit of God within them, but we also exist amongst each other, and we're all imperfect, and we all still have the flesh in us. And so with, when you put all that together, there's not going to be any possibility that we're not going to sometimes experience life as if we're not secure in Christ. That's, it's true for all of us. And I just want to encourage you that the way you feel is not who you are. But it is the way you feel. And it's the way I feel. In Ephesians 1, here's what, here's what the Bible said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I want you to think about that. Every spiritual blessing. So we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. So are we done? See, sometimes... When, when the Bible is telling us what God has done through Christ for us and in us, it can be a little, you know, problematic because what we experience and what we're reading can seem different. Sometimes they can seem really far apart, can't they? Every spiritual blessing. So what is God telling us that that? Once we're saved, we're, we're done. I mean, notice when the Bible talks about all that God's done through Christ, it's always in past tense. It's done. We've already received it. It's not, we're not waiting for every spiritual blessing. We've already received it. We've got it. It's past tense. Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, 
See, Paul understands. I understand. You understand. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, here's what Paul says here. He, he is, is helping us with this, this, the difference between who we are and what we experience. Paul says, because I am his, I press on for more. See, do you, where are you this morning? Do you need to press into God? Do you need to press on for more? In other words, this morning, do you, would, would you say to yourself, you know, I'm here this morning and I am, am just rejoicing in all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that I've received. I'm, I'm full to the top and in need of nothing. And I've experienced all of God I need to experience. Or would you say, no, I, I need to press in for more. There's more. I want more. I want more of him. I want to I draw closer to him. I want to experience more. Paul says he presses on because Jesus Christ has made him his own. You see, because we're utterly secure in Christ, what should happen, what should happen is that we should continually hunger for more of God. That's what's supposed to happen. That's the way this is supposed to work. You get your listening guides out. You see, the way God operates is that in Christ, confidence creates craving. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized this before or thought about this before, but it'd be very helpful for us to, to have a conversation this morning about how this principle works in our lives. Confidence creates craving. See, Paul talks about pressing on. He's the one that tells us we've already received everything. He knows what, what, what he has in salvation, yet he presses on for more. The Bible says you've already got it, but he presses on for more. And how does he press on for more? Well, because of the confidence that he has that he belongs to God. You see, it's that confidence that creates our craving. And so when our craving is low, when we're not pressing in, when we feel dry and thirsty, when we, we, we know intellectually that we, we need more of God. We're struggling. I, I, need, I need more of God. I need to draw close to Him. But our heart is it's not cooperating. You know, Jesus tells this amazing parable as only he can in one sentence he says in Matthew 13 the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field now this simple story illustrates exactly what I'm talking about you see what you have here is this extreme nature of a response a man sells everything he has to buy this field 
And the extreme nature of his response is based solely on the confidence that he has in what he's found. You understand that it sounds, you know, wait a minute, what, you found this treasure? And so then you sold everything you had to buy the treasure? The only way that makes sense is that he has utter confidence in the value of what he's found. You see, if he found something and he looked at it and thought, well, I'm not really sure if that's that great, or I don't know what that is, or I might need to, you know, take this to the pawn shop and get it appraised, or, you know, I don't know what to do here. Maybe he takes it and, you know, smuggles it over and shows it to some of his friends and say, hey, do you recognize this? Have you seen this? Do you know anything about this? Maybe he, you know, hides it and then comes back and visits, you know, goes and talks to some people, reads some books, looks some stuff up on Google, whatever the case may be. But he wouldn't go and sell everything he had to possess it unless he was completely and utterly confident in the value of what it was. You see, the reason that he has such a craving to possess it is because he has confidence in what it is. We are designed this way. And see, although we have access to the unlimited riches of God, our experience oftentimes is doesn't bear witness to that. And when that happens, we need to understand that we have a confidence problem. We have a confidence problem. See, God's desire for His children is to respond to their dissatisfaction in this life with a burning desire for more of Him. When we meet God, when we, when we encounter God, when we come to, to uh, grips to the degree that we can with the, the vastness and the goodness and the glory and the grace and the mercy of God, when those things collide with our wicked sinful heart, and we realize what God is doing for us and has done for us in salvation then the things of this world begin to dissatisfy. See, we're dissatisfied with things that used to, we used to think satisfied us. We, it changes our paradigm. We get new spiritual taste buds, if you will. We start to like things we used to not like when we dislike things we used to like. See, we change. That's what happens. There's more to be tasted. We realize the exceeding greatness of the power that's at work in us. And so things are different for us. We we know that there's more. We long for more of His indwelling Spirit and His power. There's more of the, the width and length and depth and height of his love there's more of the fullness of his personhood there's more of his holiness there's more of his love there's more of his compassion there's more of his patience there's more there's more boldness for us to experience in him there's there's more fruitfulness for us to experience in him than any of us have ever experienced in other words all of us wherever we are on this journey 
Can we agree this morning? If you're a brand new Christian, you just took the cellophane off your Bible and you're just figuring all this stuff out, or if you've been walking with God for decade upon decade upon decade, all of us, there's more for us. There's more. None of us have arrived. There's more. We can press in. See, in the world, in life, right, we, the more we taste, the more we want. It's, when we taste something good, we want more. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, surely we've all experienced this. When, when you lick the spoon, when your mom's making a, a, a cake or a batch of cookies, when you lick the spoon, licking the spoon doesn't satisfy your desire for the finished product. It enhances it. When I lick the spoon, I'm even more excited about what's about to happen. And I'm even more annoyed by the clock that's preventing me from enjoying it as I wait. I'm like, a, like, a, like some kind of a lab monkey or something. Like that buzzer on our stove, like I know when that thing goes off, I just jump into action because something good just happened. That's how we are. The Bible says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When we taste the delicious, wonderful words and promises of God, it doesn't, it doesn't bring us to satisfaction. It, it enhances our desire for more. That's how God intended it, to make us want more. But you see, there's this crazy reality that I wish I could say that it was never true in my life. But we, we have to understand that there's a principle at work, and far too often, when we receive a small measure of God's blessing and power, we're prone to turn away satisfied as if God won't give us more. And I know this morning that for many of you in this room, this is a big problem. And I don't even know if you realize that you do this. That you experience God. God God works in your life. God answers a prayer. God moves in your heart. God reveals something to you. He just, he just blesses you with his presence or, or a sense of assurance. And, and you, you are so moved and grateful for that. And you have this spiritual moment, this spiritual high point. And then here's what you do. You either knowingly or unknowingly, you sort of turn away satisfied. See, you, what you don't realize is that that's not God serving you the cookies. That's God letting you lick the spoon. But why? And here's where it gets personal. 
why is that true? Why, why would we do this? What is it that causes this to be a reality far too often in our lives? Why would we turn away satisfied? Because there's a voice in our head that's still speaking. And it's a voice of condemnation. And so God does something in your life. And you know it's God. And you're grateful for it. And you're, you're, you're so moved by it. But that voice is still speaking that says, Well, you know, you know you don't deserve that. You just got that, but you didn't deserve that. God, you, you haven't been faithful to God. You haven't been right with God. And what happens is that voice perverts what God just did in your life into this, this convincing you of God's lack of willingness to do more. I mean, here's the truth. The truth is the reason why oftentimes when God moves in our lives, we, we turn away satisfied in that moment is because we lack confidence. We still have that voice telling us all the things that we've done wrong and all the areas of our lives that are lacking and all the things that aren't as they should be, and all the people around us that we perceive as, as better than us, and all of those things. And the remedy that we hear today from Scripture when we're struggling with condemnation, when you say in your heart, that's true so many times I've done that. Here's what so many people say. They say, you know, what's they say that that voice of condemnation, you need to you need to slay that dragon, you need to defeat that voice, you need to solve this problem. To which people say, Well, how do I do this? And then people come along and tell you. They say, You need to forgive yourself. It sounds it sounds right. You need to forgive yourself. That's not true. That's never been true. And it'll never work. And it never has worked. And here's the reason why. Because you and I can't forgive ourselves. And do you know why we can't forgive ourselves? Because we don't have the authority to forgive ourselves. What slays the dragon of condemnation is that the one who has the authority to forgive us has done so. Not us forgiving ourselves. That's why so many times you just go around in circles. And you wind up right back where you were. Because you can try and try and try to forgive yourself. But it's not going to work. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. And so what you need is not confidence in yourself. You need confidence in the one who has forgiven you. 
See, condemnation causes us to develop a preference for lesser things. That's what it does. See, if you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling with this issue and you're, you're thinking, man, God's speaking right to me right now, then you already know this to be true. Condemnation always gives us a preference for lesser things. You know, it has to. Why? Because that's all we, we, because all we deserve is a breadcrumb. All we, all we can, can have. It, it, wouldn't, it doesn't make any sense when you're hearing the voice of condemnation that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have already been given to you. But no, because that voice is constantly beating you down and reminding you. And the truth is, is that when that voice is speaking in our head, we're, our preference for lesser things is predicated on the fact that greater things are inaccessible. They're unaccessible to us. See, other people can have them, but I can't. Other people, better people, more, more spiritual people, more obedient people. But they're not... They're not accessible to me because of, of who I am. And I want you to understand something. The ultimate essence of evil is a preference for things other than God. It's the ultimate essence of evil. And this is why Paul is, listen, Paul is, is reminding these foolish Corinthians who are acting like children and who are, are, are saying things that they ought never say or thinking things they ought never think and, 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 and trying to wound and hurt someone who loves them deeply. They're behaving in a way they should absolutely never behave. And instead of attacking them, you know what Paul does? He just reminds them of all the things that they should once had confidence in. He's, he's, he's merely attacking this, this issue of, of evil that's working in their lives to give them a preference for lesser things. So he says, press into what's greater. So what does it mean to press into God? You know, you hear people, you say, or you're reading your Bible, and, and the Bible says, well, press into God or draw near to God. Well, well what does that mean? What 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 part of God am I pressing into? What aspect of, you know, I mean, I need some clarity on this. What exactly is the Bible talking about? Well, what the Word of God is doing is it's, it's teaching us to press into the things that shatter condemnation. To press into that which builds up our confidence. See, all of this starts to make sense as we start to realize that, well, if we're going to stand on the promises of God, I mean, certain things have to be true. Like, first of all, we have to know the promises of God. We, we can't stand, we can't have confidence in something we don't know what that is, right? So we have to know, we have to know what God's promised to have confidence in that. 
We can't be reminded of something that we, we don't know, that we never knew. So the first thing we have to realize is that we have to, we have to know, well, what has God promised? What has God done? What are these things? That's why Paul's reminding them not of new things. He's reminding them of things he's already taught them. It's, just, it's such a, uh, an obvious principle that underlines everything in the Bible. God's promises are according to his power and position, not our propensities. You see, when we don't know what God has promised, I mean, I'm not saying when we can't paraphrase or or say some slogan that we saw on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker or whatever the case may be. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, actually, no. What actually has God promised? See, if there's any confusion, first of all, if you're not sure of something, well, you won't have any confidence in it. Maybe you've heard people say it, but you're not sure how that works or what that means. Or, and this is why so many times so many people walk around discouraged and give, actually feed the voice of condemnation in your mind because you're thinking, wow, you know, the, the Bible says this and this and this and those things aren't happening in my life, to which the voice of condemnation loves. But the voice of truth is saying, is that actually what the Bible says? In other words, the promises of God are according to His power and His position, not our inclinations, not our propensities, not our idea. God doesn't promise you what you think, what you want, what you like, what you... No, no, because He's above that. He promises What's above your understanding? What's above your ability to comprehend? What, we're, we're finite. He's infinite. So what he promises is, is according to his infinite power and his infinite position as ruler, sovereign authority over all things. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. See? Because... I want you to think about this. We celebrate the Lord's Supper to celebrate what Christ has done on the cross. And so we, the piece of bread is symbolic for his broken body, this unleavened bread. The, the cup of juice is symbolic of his shed blood. So God commands his children to do this in remembrance of him. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's a perfect illustration of how the promises of God are not according to our propensities. Because let's let's just understand, we would have never asked God in 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 a billion lifetimes, none of us would have ever asked God to do for us what he did for us in Christ. None of us would have dreamed that up. None of us could have comprehended that. None of us could have thought about that. None of us would have come to that conclusion on our own. None of us ever, ever. So if the promises of God were predicated on 
People using Scripture out of context by just saying in all random circumstances, well, you have not because you ask not. So I only have what I ask for? So who in here asked God to slaughter his son so that they might be reconciled to him? Nobody. Nobody could dream that up. Because his ways are so far above our ways and his thoughts and his understanding. What I'm trying to get you to see is that his promises are infinitely better than any ideas or principles or things that we could come up with on our own. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of God's promises not only being fulfilled, but that they're better and higher and more amazing than, than anything we could ever come up with on our own. See, why do you think of all the things when Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, about to go to the cross, of all the things that he could have said, hey, Here's what you need to stay focused on. Here's what you need to continually remind yourself of. Of all of the things, he says two. The body and the blood. Because they're, they're, the, they're the, the, the two highest, most unthinkable farthest away from anything we could comprehend in our human mind. And so when we do this, when we, when we see the magnitude of Christ's payment for our sin, how he shed his blood to cover all of our wickedness, we see how committed God is to our redemption, that he would do the unthinkable, he, that he would pay the highest possible conceivable cost that could ever be paid, that he would do that? You see, it sets the bar for everything else, doesn't it? I mean, how does the fact that God has kept the hardest promise that has ever been made in the history of the universe, how does that reality not give us confidence in his faithfulness to keep all the other promises. You see? You see, if he did the hardest thing imaginable, that, that really is, is so hard it's not even imaginable to us because we can only imagine it because he already imagined it for us because we could never do that on our own. You see, if it were up to us, where would we be? If the promises of God activated in our life were, were, were dependent on you and me thinking of the right things to ask for, we'd be in a world of hurt, wouldn't we? We'd be asking God for a lot of things, wouldn't we? But we wouldn't be asking him for the right things. None of us could have ever dreamed this up. We would have never even thought it possible, would we? No. I mean, the first time I heard the gospel, I just, my first response was, that can't be true. It can't be. There's no way that that's true. 
It's way, way too good to be true. And so Paul says in verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes. All of them in Christ are yes. In other words, what we're about to do is celebrate the moment that made everything that God ever said to us yes. You see that? That it's, it's Christ that made it yes. It's Christ that gives us confidence in all of these things that God has done. Because the truth is we all move in the direction of the promises we believe. That's true. We all move in the direction of the promises we believe. That's how we we, we operate. And so every so often we have to stop and we have to recalibrate and we have to address the voice in our head that is constantly trying to steer us towards lesser things. That voice that's constantly, even as I've been speaking this morning, it's been reminding you of your failures and your mistakes. It's been reminding you of your past. It's been working diligently, continuously. It's even condemning you in the future as if it has the power to do that. Some of you, you, that voice in your head has already said to you this morning, not only have you done all these things, but you know you're going to do it again. How does it know that? It doesn't know that. It doesn't have to be that way. We're no longer slaves to sin. You've received all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Everything the Bible says that pertains to life and godliness has been given to you and to me in Christ Jesus. See, it doesn't have to be that way. It lies. So we have to stop and we have to address it. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. And I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, it's been a challenge because uh, I've felt in my heart that we need to we need to uh, experience the Lord's table in, in different ways because one of the dangers for us as a family, the reason why we don't celebrate the Lord's table, we don't have communion every Sunday is because then it just becomes another thing. And that's terribly dangerous. But then the other danger is, is that every time we celebrate it, we celebrate it the same way. And so we began working and praying about how we might do this months ago. Because it's a lot of people in here. And it's uh, the easy thing is to just 
keep doing what you've always done. Do what you know. Do what's easy. Do what's simple. But I don't think that's always the best policy. And so we're going to do things a little differently this morning. I want you to remember and understand that the Bible teaches that the Lord's table is open to all Christians. This is for all people, all men, women, children who have repented of their sin and put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation. And so I want you to know that if you're here with us this morning and you're our guest, you're visiting with us, or you've been coming and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're, you're walking on that path, you're here this morning, well, we are so glad that you are, so thankful that you are. And we're excited about the opportunity to walk along this path with you. But if, it, if that is you, then just uh, just abstain from this time. Don't, don't, don't do something just to do what everyone else around you is doing. And we've worked hard to make sure that we don't alienate or identify you as not participating, okay? We're grateful. We truly are that you're here. But this is a command for every believer to participate in. And we got to do two things. We got to be we got to be we got to be careful with self-inspection and we also got to be careful with table reflection. We got to we got to search our heart and we got to confess our sin before God, but we also have to contemplate what these elements mean, what his body and his blood accomplished for us. We need to realize that this is something that the Lord commanded us to partake in. And so if, if you're a believer and you don't partake in this, the Bible gives excruciatingly harsh warnings of the consequences of not rightly participating in the Lord's Supper. So our focus is going to be on prayer and preparation as the Bible commands us to. And so here's what we're going to do. You're going to stay seated where you are. And you're going to pray. And you're going to get before God. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna examine yourself. And you're going to say, God, I want more of you. And I want you to rid me of the things that are in me that you're not pleased with. And confess those things to God. And then I want you to think about what you're about to do. Think about his body and think about his blood and think about what they accomplished on your behalf. And so just reflect on those two things. And then when you're ready, then I want you to just stand up and make your way down the aisle. And when you get down to the end of the aisle, before you get to the altar, there's going to be some men who love you and who pray for you, and who have prepared this day for you. And they're going to serve you these elements in remembrance of all that Christ has done for you. And for 400 years, Christians who, who received the elements, here's what they would do. They would receive the bread, they would receive the juice, and then as they took them, They would say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And so what I would encourage you to do is receive those elements. If you want to kneel at the altar, you kneel at the altar. 
or you can just stand and you take them and you say in your heart or out loud, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And then when you're done, you just get up, come up the stairs. There's trash cans on the side. You're going to go out these side doors. You're going to circle around. You're going to come back in because we're not quite finished. We're just almost. And find your seat. And so we're not all going to come trampling up to the front at once. We're going to come as space permits. And we're going to just move in this direction. So you can just set your Bible aside. Set your listening guide aside. Now listen, this is important. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not confident in walking down here or navigating up these stairs, if, if you're unable to do that physically or you're just not confident in your ability to be able to do this, then please let us serve you. All you have to do is when, you're, when your heart is prepared, you stay where you are. And when you're ready to receive the elements, you simply raise your hand and we'll bring them to you and we'll serve you right where you are, okay? Remember, as we exit out the side, if you're going to kneel at the altar, that's fine. Just don't block these side stairs so people can move out the sides. The service isn't over. We'll come around back in and we'll have a seat. Let's pray. God, help us to be reminded not of how we feel, not of what the voice in our head wants to convince us of, Lord. Help us in this moment to press into the greatest promise that has ever been made in the history of the universe. The reality that you gave your life so that broken, imperfect people like us could be utterly forgiven and totally received and loved and adopted into your family. And Lord, we recognize that there are things in all of our hearts that grieve you, but we also know that you've promised to cleanse us and to forgive us of that as we confess that before you. And so we come into this moment with, with confidence in you because of what you've done. And we, we freely confess, which we know you already know. And we think about what these elements represent, and we thank you for it. So God, thank you for this time that we share together as a family and for what you'll do in our hearts through it as we obey you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. God promised to us. God promises to, to strengthen you. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Ephesians 3. God promises to give you rest. Then Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God promises to take care of your needs. 
All this time, God, who takes care of me, will supply all of my needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to me in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4. God promises to answer our prayers. The Bible says in Matthew 7, the Lord Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. And when you find, knock, and it will be opened to you. God promises to work everything out for your good. In Romans 8, he says, and we know that God calls, causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He promises to always be with you. I will not fail you, the Lord says, or abandon you. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua 1. God promises to protect you. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him, Psalm 91. God promises freedom from sin, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. God promises that nothing can separate us from him. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. God promises us everlasting life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God promises. He promises his goodness to us in Psalm 145, in 1 Chronicles 16, 34, in Psalm 100, verse 5, in James 1, 17, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 28, in Psalm 19, verse 7, in Psalm 34, 8, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, Psalm 84, verse 11. He promises that he'll always, always, always be there for us when we need him. Isaiah 40, 29, Isaiah 43, 2, Jeremiah 29, Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 1, Psalm 23, 4, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He promises to always hear his children when they call to him. James chapter 1, verse 5, Mark 11, 24, Psalm 37, 4, John 14, 13, Jeremiah 29, 12, Psalm 102, 17, Psalm 145, 118. He promises us life in Christ, 1 John 1, 9, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, John 8, 36, Romans 10, 9, and 10. He promises that he will provide for our needs according to what he knows in his perfect wisdom. Matthew 6, 31, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Matthew 7, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Psalm 34, 10, Romans 8, 32. Jesus promises that he'll save us. John chapter 8, verse 11, Isaiah 61, 1. John 14, 15, and 16, John 10, 10, John 11, 25, John 15, 5, Matthew 28, 20, John 14, 1 through 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of his glory, of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure of which he had purposed in himself that in the fullness of time he might gather together as one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. For I say to you this morning by the authority of the word of God that for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And let's be reminded as we leave here today that if we have faith that God holds our eternity, then we can have faith that he holds our every day. That every day you can have confidence in the trustworthy, guaranteed faithfulness of the God who has gone out of his way to give us promise upon promise upon promise upon promise so that we might... When we struggle, not if we, but when we, when we feel distant, when we, when we veer, we can press into God. We, we can recognize that what we have is a, a confidence problem. And let's be reminded of what we know. Don't, don't allow the voice in your head to give you a preference for lesser things. Press in for the greatest the greatest things this world has to offer, the promises of your faithful God who gave his son to prove to us. He who would give his son, how much more then would he not give us all things? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the confidence that comes with the reminder of who you are and what you've done.